Good morning, everyone. How's everyone doing? Thanks for joining us. If you're online or in person, it's great to be here. And I love these extra elements today as we're talking about family faith. It just seems so very fitting. And so, as said, my name's Brendan, one of the pastors on staff, and it's a joy to open up God's Word together this morning. Uh, we'll be in Mark chapter 3 in just a minute, if you like to turn there. Um, and so we'll jump in. I grew up in a big family. Well, not a big biological family. I had a mom and a dad and one brother and a dog. Uh, I had a couple of snakes as a teenager because I'm a little bit weird. I had a little bit of extended family. So really, my family was actually pretty small. But I had a big spiritual family from the church. And I usually often saw a number of them more than once a week on Sundays. There was a good six to ten families who regularly did life together. Lots of us having kids around the same age. We went on an annual camping trip every May long weekend. We would often go on another camping trip or two through the summer uh, with, another, with one or two families. We had ski passes to Friday nights at Cyprus. We grew up together. And the parents also had permission to form and disciple each other's kids. I remember playing golf around the age of 11 with two other dads and their kids. Uh, and as one does in golf, I, I just duffed a shot. And as what also happens in golf, I muttered a profanity. One of the other dads heard it. And he sternly reprimanded me in a way in which I still remember. His words and correction held weight in my life. One of Jesus' most radical teachings is about family, specifically his redefinition or expansion of what the family is. And I think it's fitting to end our church series on church matters with family faith, specifically for the next generation. I think it ties together everything we've talked about so far over the last number of weeks, worship, service, discipleship, fellowship, and using our spiritual gift. They all take place in the context of our spiritual family. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus had recently chosen his 12 disciples. He's at the start of his ministry, and he's teaching in the house, and this house becomes so crowded, they couldn't even eat. And Jesus' family had heard about his newfound fame, and they came to talk some sense into him and try to pull him back into a humble reality. We'll start in verse 31 to 35. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? Jesus asked. Then he looked at those seated in the circle around him, and he said, Here are my mothers and brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. This interaction with Jesus always seemed a little bit strange to me. Jesus goes, he's arguing with the teachers of the law, and then he goes to thoughtful philosopher. I always imagined him getting this question and pausing and stroking his beard and saying, who are my mother? But I don't actually think that's what's going on here. I think this is a serious moment. And what Jesus says would have been extremely jarring and counter to their deeply held beliefs about family. As the oldest son, Jesus had a clear cultural obligation to care for his family. To not care for them would have been seen as a moral failure. Yet Jesus takes this moment to redefine the family of God to whoever does the will of God. Jesus is looking at the larger picture. He's bringing us into the spiritual realm. And Jesus gives us an invitation to become a part of something new and something bigger than ourselves. 
Scholar N.T. Wright says, Jesus slices through the whole traditional structure in one clean cut. God is doing the unthinkable. He's starting a new family, a new holy people, and he's doing so without regards for the, or, for the human family ordinary bond. The Apostle John in John 1.12 says, To those who receive Christ, to those who believe in his name, God gives the right to become children of God. The next verse goes on to say that those who believe have a spiritual rebirth into the family of God. The Apostle Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 1. I like how the NLT put it, puts it, the New Living Translation. It says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loves us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. Such a good passage. And whatever your experience of your earthly father is, we must look to how the Bible describes our heavenly father. He blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He united us with the Savior of the world. He loves us. He chooses us. He adopts us into his family, and he chose to do so not because he was obligated, but because it gave him joy. What a picture of a father, and what a great picture of what any parental figure can strive to be and look like. I'm going to come back to our new spiritual family at the end of this message, but I wanted to start with it because I wanted to make sure everyone is invited into this main section of teaching, whether you're single or divorced or childless. I want you to know that God sees you, that we as a church, as the family of God, that we see you and that you're included in this extended family in a profound way. But I do want to take some time and give us an overview of a theology of family. More specifically, the biological family that's ordained by God and, of course, is the means by which we all exist and are here today. And I think it's necessary to do so, firstly, because it gives us a foundation for our spiritual family. And secondly, it's important because, because of the depth of the breakdown of the family in our culture. As far as I have read and understand, the breakdown of the family is not helping us flourish. It's causing all sorts of problems, brokenness, loneliness, confusion, and pain. And when God ordains something, like family, we have an enemy, and the devil wants to attack it and unravel it. And in the last 80 years in particular, we see this happening on a number of levels. No-fault divorce, hookup culture, and sexual freedom have not helped families flourish, particularly the most vulnerable, our children. Here's a few statistics on fatherlessness, which has become more and more common. These stats are from fatherhood.org. Children without fathers are four times as likely to live in poverty, are more likely to suffer emotional and behavioral problems. They have higher levels of aggressive behavior than children born into married homes, two times the risk of infant mortality, and they're more likely to go to prison. Only one in five prison inmates grew up with their father present. I find that a staggering statistic. 80% had no fathers. They're also twice as likely to be involved in early sexual activity. These are not warm and fuzzy statistics. 
and the breakdown of the family has also coincided with epidemic levels of mental health struggles. Now, of course, there's a lot of factors for our mental health, but I believe the breakdown of the family and the rejection of a spiritual, biblical center are large contributing factors. So what I believe this means is that a family, a theology of family is really important. To begin with, I want to start by saying what the biblical vision of family is not. The biblical vision isn't simply the nuclear family, like the old hit TV show, Leave it to Beaver, with a little bit of Jesus sprinkled on top. It's not so much that. That vision has a mom and a dad with two kids and a pet and a white picket fence. Sounds actually quite a bit like my upbringing. I remember repainting that white, pe- that white fence with my dad. I'm like, Dad, it gets green every winter. Why do we paint anything white here? But what marks the nuclear family more than this is a single family home, usually with one income earner, and more so, it's not connected to other generations in the family. And that was only made possible by the abundance of wealth in the modern Western world. Before, you needed to be linked to all the living generations in your family while having many children. Plenty of the world still lives like this. Another marker of the nuclear family is it turned families into consumers and it focused on making your children happy, even if that meant neglecting their character formation. So, if the vision of the biblical family isn't the nuclear family, what is it? Well, a lot of good biblical theology starts in the first couple chapters of Genesis. Genesis 1 and 2, I think, give us two different angles on creation. I like to think of it like this. Genesis 1 gives us the lens of the telescope, per se, and Genesis 2 is from the view of humanity. In Genesis 1, everything God creates has an opposite that fits together to make a whole, light and dark, water above and below, with air in between, land and sea, day and night, birds and fish, and then male and female, both in the animal kingdom and in humanity. The male-female dynamic is given the power to be fruitful and multiply, or in other words, by procreation, to continue the creative work that God started by reproducing their species. It's a miraculous process. Genesis 1, 27 and 28 says this. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female, he created them, and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. There's a few important things I want to point out here. Number one is that God created humanity. And if God created us, That means he's created us with intent and purpose. There's intent and purpose behind our creation. We're fearfully and wonderfully made, says the psalmist. And second, we're made in God's image. That means we all, every single human being, has immense value and dignity, as well as the potential to reflect God's love and goodness. And as image bearers, we are male and female, made equals, given the mandate to multiply and rule over the earth. This rule or dominion was meant to reflect God's loving rule and care. It was never supposed to be about dominion or, exploita- or domination and exploitation. So if that's the, the lens from the big telescope, let's zoom into our level. Genesis 2 verse 7 gets personal. The Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being or a living soul. 
Now, I love this intimate picture that Genesis 2, God gets in the dirt, he gets his hands dirty, and he forms the human and breathes life into him. In this chapter, God plants a garden, the Garden of Eden, and he puts the man in it to work it and to take care of it. But there's a problem. The world is huge. Adam can't possibly begin to cultivate and rule by himself, and all the animals won't help him. I know golden retrievers are amazing now, so they must have been really amazing in the Garden of Eden. But verse 20 says, For Adam, no suitable helper was found. So what does God do? Well, he puts Adam under a pretty serious general anesthetic and does some creative surgery. Well, it's way more amazing than that. Most translations say God took one of Adam's ribs to make a woman, but it's more literally means side. God took from Adam's side. God didn't take from his head to be ruled over or from his feet that he would trample over her, but from his side so that they could walk side by side together as equals. And when Adam wakes up, it says, God brings the woman to him. And, and he is, he's stoked. The love chemicals, they start flooding his brain. He writes a love poem. He gets to work wooing her immediately. He doesn't strike out or get friend-zoned. Then in verse 24, it says, That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Both Jesus and the Apostle Paul affirmed this by quoting this passage in the New Testament. And in this verse, we have marriage and the forming of a family. Notice the language, father and a mother and a man being united to his wife. This is the marriage ceremony that is finalized by one fleshing. In other words, intercourse. That word you were all hoping to hear in church this morning. One flesh where two opposite yet equals come together as one in a powerful act that has the capability to generate new life, to grow the family. Now, in terms of God's plan for the earth and humanity, God could have gone about filling and cultivating the world in a million different ways. He could have blinked. He could have made an app for that or utilized his angels. He could have put together a board of directors or started a nonprofit but he chose to create a family, a multi-generational team to share his loving rule of the world and to cultivate this earth. And if you keep reading to Genesis 12, God chooses Abraham to start a new family, a chosen family with a special mission, mission to bless the world. God says, all people on earth will be blessed through you. And through the family line of Abraham, Jesus is born to bless and reconcile the world by drawing all of humanity into the family of God. So to recap, the family is God's plan to build and grow a multi-generational team to care for and cultivate this world while blessing others. A quick theology of family. Now, the big question is, how do we do this practically in 2023? How do we form the next generation to enter into God's story, to enter into God's family and take on the responsibility of caring for and blessing others and this world? I've come up with three words for us. Presence, God's presence specifically, intentionality, and consistency. I'll share a quick story here. 
a while ago, my wife was having a conversation with one of my boys. Um, my wife is an operating room nurse, and she's an organ donor, and she was explaining how someone might get an or organ transplant from someone who dies unexpectedly in order that they may live. They were talking about a potential miracle of a heart transplant. Later that night, my son came up with this question. He said, if I died and I gave my heart to someone, would my heart still love Jesus? That's appropriate response. It's like, oh, it's amazing. This is the kind of moment that us parents live for. When our parents become generous and want to give to others, when they want to read and talk about the Bible, or their aggressive evangelism strategies. One day my boy walked up to her neighbor and said, do you love Jesus? Very to the point. It's amazing when our kids' faith is blossoming. But then the next day, for whatever reason, they want nothing to do with Jesus, and they fight tooth and nail at prayer time. Like us, they go through seasons of ups and downs in their own spiritual journeys. But let me suggest this. I don't think a child comes up with a faith-filled moment without these three elements in their life. God's spirit and presence working in their hearts with intentionality and consistency in raising them up in the faith. And here's the beautiful thing. I don't believe for a second that these kind of moments happen only from a mom and a dad. It's the effort of grandparents, aunts and uncles, of youth and adults in the church, summer camp volunteers, Sunday school volunteers and pastors that take the time to impart faith to our children. Jesus' great big multi-generational, multi-ethnic family of God. So as adults, we need to gauge where we're at with this. Our kids, teens, and young adults in this church need to see a vibrant faith in us. The Apostle Paul told this to the Corinthian church. He told them to follow his example, to imitate him as he followed the example of Christ and imitated Christ. So let's strive to live in a way, whether we're single or married or parents or not, where we could say, as Paul does to any child, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Now, of course, we're not going to do this perfectly, but with intentionality and consistency, we can move on the path. Youth ministry researcher Chap Clark did a study called Sticky Faith in order to find out what were the factors that were keeping teens in the faith into their adulthood. And this study was done because approximately half of the teens that grow up in the church walk out on their faith by 18. That should be jarring to all of us. And he said this, a key finding was that every child needs five adults to be involved in their, not just their life, but in their spiritual lives. All right, you've heard it takes a village. Well, it takes a church to raise a child. This is where the bigger family of God that Jesus talks about in Mark chapter 3 comes in. If we are a family after all, that means we all have a part in raising the next generation. And if you're a single parent, or any parent, find other trusted adults to help impart wisdom and faith into your children's lives. Raising children, that is the hardest thing I do. Uh, Ed Drew is the director of Faith and Kids. He says, for many Westerners who have grown up in relatively stable environments, being parents is perhaps for the first time that they'll come to the end of themselves, the first time you admit defeat. In his excellent book called Raising Confident Kids in a Confusing World, Drew says, nothing reveals our anger, impatience, or selfishness like being a parent. 
Parenting confronts us with our need to change, even as we seek to lead our kids to change. And it is always the Holy Spirit who brings that change. I was like, um, I can relate. And in some ways, that doesn't even include the pointing them to Jesus part, just everyday battles wearing you down, the busy, fast pace of our lives. It's hard to be consistent and intentional in discipling our kids. It feels like an enormous task. About a month ago, I was like, oh, I want my kids to memorize Psalm 23, so I made a graphic, I printed it out, I put it on the fridge and in their room, and we got a few verses in, and I lacked consistency. And it's still there, we're still working on it a little bit, but I stumble at this. And that's probably normal, but the question is, or, or but the goal is to stumble forward with this. I want to say, though, with intentionality and consistency, there's been a recent cultural value that I think is sneaking into the church, particularly in family of teens, that's causing parents to pull back in their discipleship to their teen children. The Evangelical Fellowship of Canada's Center of Research on Church and Faith did a recent study on parenting faith. They surveyed 1,200 Christian families, and when asked how much Christian parents agreed with the following statement, I want my children to make their own religious choices without pressure from me. 73% of parents, parents moderately or strongly agreed. The ethic is, we need to give our kids room to make their own decision. And there's definitely some truth in that, right? We want them to own their faith, to take it on for themselves. That's the goal. But if we don't intentionally disciple them, the statistics are showing far too many young people are leaving the faith. And many well-meaning Christian parents who desperately care for the spiritual lives of their kids are purposefully backing off in their discipleship. Results from this study and others clearly show that the best way to raise our kids in the faith is to both model and teach well. We need to model and teach the faith. Because if we don't, everybody and everything in this world is already discipling them into a competing, a differing worldview that rejects Jesus as Savior. And I think the Bible is also pretty clear on this. In Deuteronomy, Moses is giving his final message to the Israelites before they enter the promised land, and this is what he says. In chapter 4, he says, Be careful, watch yourselves closely, that you don't forget the things your eyes have seen or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after him. Chapter 6, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress, imprint, engrave them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands, bind them on your foreheads, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. We need to do this because I think likely us humans are forgetful creatures. I know I certainly am. We need all sorts of reminders to keep us on the right path. We need to form habits that draw us into the presence of God and remind us of our identity in Jesus. I picked up a book a couple of weeks ago, Habits of the Household. It's probably the most practical book with the most ideas I've ever read. Two that I wanted to adopt right away that I read this week. When I get out of the bed, the first thing I do is get on my knees and pray for my day. And at the end of the day, before I get into my bed, I go over, I put a hand on my door's kids and say a prayer for each of them. 
Now, in this book, he has lots of simple ideas and practices and conversation starters for every moment of the day. I really think every family should have one. And if you're a grandparent here, what a great extra as a Christmas gift. Grandparents, I know you love to spoil your grandchildren, and that's fantastic, but please don't forget to spoil them spiritually. Amen? On our website, under Ministries and NSA Kids, we have a whole page of different resources you can buy. Look them up. It should be in a link on your sermon notes. We have it on the youth page as well. So now, if you are single, if you're retired, if you don't have family close by, I'd like to offer a few suggestions. Perhaps you can get to know one family in our church with kids. Figure out how you can pray for them. Maybe go to a sports game or a performance to cheer them on. Write their kids cards with encouraging notes and Bible verses. Bake cookies. Get creative. Ask the Spirit, how can we bless others in our community? How can we use our spiritual gifts? And to families, let's look out for those who are single in our community. Invite them into our chaos. Again, find ways to be creative. The North Shore is a unique community. We have people from all over the world without family close by. And the beautiful thing is, lots of people are doing these kinds of things already. To wrap this up, I'd like to say it like this. Pursue, pray for, and practice the presence of God in your homes with intentionality and consistency. To finish with, I want to share an inspiring story. This is from John Tyson's Primal Path Ministry. An ordinary dad wrote this in, and he was starting um, a rite of passage journey to spiritual manhood for his 13-year-old son. This is what he writes. I took Cy on some fun hikes at a local skate park. Sorry, state park, not skate park, state. <laughs> we hiked through brush, explored, waded through marsh, fished, got dirty. Great bonding times. I built up a weekly evening ritual for months, telling him something was coming. I didn't share a lot of details, just that there was an ancient path that boys take to become a man. It's going to be good, but it's going to be hard and necessary. But you can do it, and I'll be with you. When the initiation night came, we arrived after dark at the lake. When we got there, we lit a torch that lit our path as we walked towards the edge of the water. Wood was stacked in a fire pit, and I had him light the fire with the torch. It ignited immediately, prepped by my dad. Then a drum started to beat in the woods behind us. From the darkness emerged both Sai's grandfathers, his uncle, and a pastor from our church. We circled around the fire. I shared some of my heart in a scripture passage with Sai, and I gave him a compass, which was an artifact that belonged to my grandfather. I had it engraved for him to remember this moment. Afterward, each man shared first an encouragement or potential they saw in Sai, and second, a piece of wisdom, a word of caution or challenge they had for Sai as a man. It was so powerful. There was tears. I also asked each man to write his message down in, in a letter and give it to Sai. Then together, we invited Sai to join the, the primal path, an ancient path where over the next few years, we would train him the art of being a man and following Jesus. If he was willing to embark on this, we had him shoot a flaming arrow out into the lake, which he did. Then we all gathered around him. We lift him up. We threw him in the air three times, and then everyone embraced him, and we prayed together. It was one of the best moments of my whole life, an ordinary dad named Josh, combining these three elements. As I look around this room, I see, broke, I see the broken, the scarred, 
potentially the still bleeding, but the redeemed, the justified, the beautiful, multi-generational, multi-ethnic family of God. In this season, let us draw closer to one another. We might as well do it now, because we've got a whole lot of eternity to spend together. Let's get to know each other now. Let's pursue, pray for, and practice the presence of God with intentionality and consistency. Worship team, I invite you to come up. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a good Father who loves to bless his children and who loves to grow his children. Father, we pray that you would parent all of us, first and foremost, that you would speak to our hearts and that you would continue to walk us into life. Jesus, I want to pray for single parents today and the difficulty of that. God, I pray that you would give them an extra measure of blessing and energy and wisdom and help us as a church family come around them. Lord, I want to pray for those parents whose kids have walked away from the faith. God, I pray for comfort. God, I pray also for wisdom as they can continue to intentionality pursue them with all kinds of love. We pray for those who've walked away that we love. Jesus, we pray that your spirit continues to be at work in them and drawing them back to yourself. And so, Jesus, we love you. May we, as a multi-generational, multi-ethnic family of God, be blessed today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would like prayer, we have Josh and Steph over there, or I believe Andrea and Dan in the balcony. If anything has kind of stirred your heart, I encourage you to go get prayer as a response to this message.